Amen. You can take your seats. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Ross, and it's just a joy to be with you. Merry Christmas. I hope you're enjoying this season. It is 12 shopping days until Christmas. Uh, 12. Um, if you're anything like me, that makes you a bit anxious as you still haven't bought any of your promised presents and you still have approximately 463 Christmas parties uh, to attend between now and Christmas Day. We really have taken what should be um, the most restful, the most thoughtful season of the year and made it one of the most busy and distracted and stressful seasons that we all experience. But now that I'm in your head, before you rush off to talk, Target, um, or wanted us to do some work this morning thinking about why and how we ought to celebrate this season. You see, we really do need the message of hope that Christmas is supposed to bring, maybe even more this year than many of you have experienced in years in the past. We need the message that, that, that reminds us every December that God isn't done with the world. That, that he loves us, and that out of that love, he sends his son to, to rescue us, to save us, to win us back to himself. He sends his son into the world to live like we are supposed to live, and to usher in the possibility of a new kind of life in a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that is in the here and now, that is at hand, that we can touch and see and experience, and one day will be kind of manifest eternally forevermore for us to enjoy. And so this year, we're doing a short series of sermons that we've just called Behold. Uh, our hope is that we'd be a people who take the time and the deliberate attention to once again behold Jesus Christ in the fullness of his majesty. See, behold, it's a bit of an old-fashioned word. In fact, it's a very biblical word. In fact, if you look for it, you're going to start to see it everywhere in the scriptures, particularly if you use the ESV for your daily study. When I was a pastor at a church in South Africa, we made the transition um, from the NIV to the ESV. We did that mainly because of publishing rights, because uh, the NIV publisher was charging us to put the, the scriptures on the screen, um, and the ESV weren't. And so, pragmatism, right? Um, and so, uh, we went to the ESV, and one of my elders came and said, I've got a major problem with the ESV. And I was like, okay, here we go. Let's work this through. Is it some of the Greek translation? Is it some of the gendered pronouns? Oh, where is it? You've got a problem. He's like, no, no, they're, they're, they're lazy in their translation. I said, what do you mean they're lazy in their translation? He said, have you read the gospels in the ESV? I said, I have. He said, have you noticed how many times they use the word behold? I said, I actually haven't. And so I went away and I read it. I started with the Gospel of Matthew and I went through them all. And you're going to see the word behold a whole bunch. Not many sentences go by. And he was like, well, that's just lazy. I was like, well, maybe actually that's just the Holy Spirit telling us that we need to stop and behold some of these astonishing truths that we've grown so familiar with. You see, to behold is more than just to look. In fact, it's more than just to see something. The word behold literally means to perceive through deliberate observation. To perceive through deliberate observation. It's to gain an understanding of the worth or value or true nature of something through taking the time and the deliberate energy to see something rightly and intentionally. It's seeing something for what it really is. 
couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of being on safari in South Africa, which is um, where I'm from. And you guys should know how much I love you by the fact that I was prepared to use the word safari, uh, because no one in South Africa calls it a safari. All right, that's something we made up for American tourists because we love the dollars. Uh, But no one says that in South Africa, all right, uh, except Americans. And so if you want to be a South African and tell them you want to go on safari, you say, I want to go to the bush. Right? And you go like, the bush? Which bush? Like, uh, that's quite generic. No, you just go to the bush. That's what you do. So we were in the bush on safari um, a, a, a couple of weeks ago. And it's kind of our happy place, a place called Mabula. It's a private game reserve just outside Johannesburg. Um, and we went there and I drove my family down on, a, on, on a, like a game viewing vehicle down to my favorite part in the, uh, in the preserve. It's about an hour away from, from the lodge that we have there. And uh, uh, we, we parked and we stopped and it's on a, a place called Manakam Plain, right? And so it's this massive plain where a whole bunch of kind of animals congregate every day and we'd go there for sunset and you, you have a sundowner and you watch this. And, and I turned off the engine and Katie was sitting next to me, my daughter and Daniel and, and, and my wife Sue was sitting behind me and the sun was setting over the African plain, right over there. African savannah, also Americans only say that, um, but uh, we were looking out and there were two breeding families of, of rhinoceros, right, and so you've got mom and dad and baby in these two families on this plane, there was a massive migrating herd of elant, um, which is the world's largest antelope, which has just been reclassified as bovine, if you care, so uh, it's now one of the largest bovine in the world, um, uh, but they were moving across, there was a giraffe in the distance and some zebra, zebra which is almost exactly like zebra, um, but just a little bit different, it's, it's black on white instead of white on black. Um, and, and we were watching this and the sun was setting and my daughter was taking it all in and Daniel was taking it all in and for once they were just listening and cooperating and everything was silent and I was just sitting there enjoying a drink and my mind and my heart just got overwhelmed because there were many things that I could see, right? I could look at it and I can see there's a rhinoceros, right? There's a migrating flock of lilac-breasted rollers or bee eaters, Sue's favorite birds flying past. There's a giraffe. This is a beautiful place. Here's my family. I can see those things. I can observe them. But in my heart, I beheld the immense privilege of being in that place and being with those people. And my heart was overwhelmed with love that, uh, that God would trust me with these precious saints and that we'd get to enjoy this moment together. I wasn't just looking, I wasn't just seeing, I was beholding, rightly seeing the value of those people and that place. It's a totally different thing. And that's what we want you to be able to do this year. To look at the very familiar imagery that is conjured at Christmas, but to behold your king for who he really is in the midst of it. To perceive through deliberate observation how beautiful and merciful and powerful and loving and glorious Jesus really is. And for that to be the center point of what could otherwise be a very busy and distracted season of celebration this year. Behold the magnificence of Emmanuel, God with us. Have you stopped to consider just recently what an incredible thing that is? How ridiculous Christmas is. Like what an outrageous claim it is. I was driving through our neighborhood the other day, which becomes like a pagan light festival this time of year. Um, it's hilarious. It's like a passive aggressive competition um, over who can uh, overdo their pagan uh, rituals. And so uh, I was driving down, but one of our neighbors uh, who I know and love, and they're not even believers, they, they set out, I think they bought it at Costco, um, which is everything in the suburbs, right? It comes from Costco. They set out this like manger scene, right? This nativity scene made out of lights. Um, and there it was. And I actually stopped my car and I just looked at it. I was like, this is ridiculous. We believe that that little baby represented in that manger is the God of the universe. It's astonishing. 
that God would love us so much that he would send his son. I want us to be blown away by that message afresh this season. And so to begin today and over the next few weeks as we lead to Christmas, we're, we're, we're going to be looking at some very familiar texts. And we thought we'd just keep you safe and comfortable in the text today. And so we're going to start at the beginning of Matthew again, because we, we haven't spent quite enough time um, in the book of Matthew. And so we're going to go back to the beginning, just make sure that you got the first part right. And we're going to jump in in Matthew 2 today. And I want to talk about this. I want to talk about a couple of ways that you could fail to behold the magnificence of Christ this Christmas. There's two particular sets of characters in this story who don't behold Jesus for who he is. They miss it completely. And then what would it look like to rightly behold? What would be the behavior of right beholding that would flow from us if we were to actually stop and see the weight and the magnificence of the incarnate Christ again? We're gonna look at a group of people who model that for us. Let's go, verse one of Matthew chapter two. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now I know that sentence just reads like a setup, right? But I'm flabbergasted by this verse. Matthew's doing something very deliberate in his narrative style. He's being cautious to remind his readers of, of Jesus' prophetic qualification, right? It's prophesied that, that, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew's being very careful to set that up. He's saying he is the one that we've been waiting for. But as he does so, friends, maybe I'm just too nerdy in the way that I read this stuff. Look at the remarkable collision of the incarnation captured in one sentence. Jesus, the one who Colossians 1 tells us has been there from the beginning and who currently rules and reigns and who will be there to to rule and reign for eternity enters into a very particular time and subjects himself into the confines of a very particular place. It's amazing. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the eternal one in the days of Herod the king, the omnipresent one in Bethlehem of Judea. Oh, how he loves us. That he would subject himself to time and space and root himself in human form in that place and at that time, oh, how he loves us. I'm amazed by the nearness of God in the message of the incarnation, the willingness of God to enter into our world. Uh, here we go, we'll read on. Behold, you see, don't just look. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. How, why would the whole city be in an uproar? Well, if you know anything about the Magi, the wise men, they rolled in with a big posse, right? So this is not three dudes, sorry to burst your bubble, I'll explain that in a second. It's a large group that rolls into town making a proclamation of a king. What have the people of Israel been waiting for forever? A Messiah, a king, right? And what do they live in? Politically uncertain times. And so they're going, wait, is this gonna lead to war? What's happening? And so everyone's talking about this. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and here they quote, quote Micah 5, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That, of course, is a deceit. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, behold, 
The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. How's that for redundancy in a sentence? Matthew really wants to make it clear. They were super stoked, right? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Okay, a couple of things for context. Now I'm gonna look at a couple of ways that we can miss beholding this Christmas and then some right responses if we do behold. Just some context clues here quickly. The word for wise men suggests that there were probably astrologers and known magicians, right? And supernatural diviners, right? In their day, they're probably from Babylon and they're men who look at the stars and try to tell the future from it. Now, why does that matter? Well, because we just call them wise men, which in our day, we think of them just being... Uh, scholars who are wisdom and, and who understood astronomy. They understood astronomy, right? But they used it for astrology. They used it for fortune telling. Now, what do we know from the Old Testament law? That was forbidden. And so are the Magi, are they well-loved in Israel? No, they hated. They're from the East. They're from Babylon. They're from a foreign people. And they practice in, in, in mystical arts that are forbidden under the law. And so if Matthew's just trying to craft some credibility for the account of the birth, he wouldn't have used the Magi because it doesn't actually establish their credibility. It would undermine their credibility to a Jewish audience. They'd go, well, who believes the Magi, right? So what is happening here in the text? Well, very clearly, we're being told, firstly, that this did really happen. Secondly, we're being told that this is God showing, hey, this message is for everyone. Good news for all men. Uh, people who saw themselves as outside of the covenant of grace can now come and experience God's blessing. People who were not his people can now come and taste and see what it feels like to be his people. Secondly, where do the Magi go? Well, they go to the home of Herod in Jerusalem. Why? They presume if a king is born, he'd be born in the king's house, just like we would, right? We think there's going to be pomp and ceremony and cucumber sandwiches and QE2, you know, waving at the crowd from a carriage. And so they go to Jerusalem. They bypass Bethlehem on their way, and they go to Jerusalem because they think big city, big pomp and ceremony. And they go to the, the, the temple because they think where else would a king be born? But friends... The arrival of Jesus is so upside down and so humble that it totally caught them off guard and it should, listen, continue to dismantle our views of what true power, true power and true prestige looks like in the world. Thirdly, let me just say this. I know you didn't ask for this today, um, but, but I've read a lot of background information this week. There has been much investigation from historians and astronomers alike to try and decipher what this cosmic event could have been. How many of you read the text and you saw that the star comes to rest over the place where the baby's born? You're like, that's not how stars work. Um, I don't know if Matthew understood what stars are, um, but they don't come to rest. Uh, they burn, you know, an explosive gas uh, millions of light years away. So this can't be right, right? And I've actually read some accounts this week of people who, who for the reason of that not being scientifically provable, have said, therefore, the whole account falls apart, right? And the divinity of Jesus Christ can be questioned from this moment. That's why this is just myth. I've read a lot of commentators trying to explore what this cosmic event might have been. Some say it was a multi-planetary alignment, and that's very possible, right? In the dark skies of Bethlehem, planets align close to each other, and it looks super bright. Some say it was possibly a comet. There was a huge comet that passed really close to Earth in 11 BC, right? Which is within the realm of possibility um, of the dating. So some say it was that. Some even suggest it was a supernova. Isn't that a cool concept? 
that was an exploding star, which means that God would have had to ordain it millions and millions of years before in order for the light to travel to the place so that they could actually observe it. Uh, this, this stuff blows my mind. It shouldn't surprise us that God would align the very stars in order to announce the arrival of his son. In fact, someone came to me after the first service and said they had this image in their mind of, you know, a little mobile or mobile that you put above a baby's crib. Maybe God the Father was putting a little mobile above the manger of Jesus Christ to look up at the star which announces his arrival. That's not biblical, but it's a cool image. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. However, friends, listen, this detail has been an area for doubt to creep in for quite a few and for them to say, uh, you know, I don't understand the rest of the story. And, I, and I'm sympathetic with that. But when I read this account, the truly mind-blowing thing in this text isn't that a star might have moved to guide men to Bethlehem. It is that the maker of those stars was present in the world in a form of a baby boy. That's the mind-blowing thing. That, that the 200 billion trillion stars in the cosmos would be the playthings of this baby boy. My son Daniel has become a bit of a know-it-all and he comes home from um, uh, his Austin school district uh, education and some days he tells me some things where I'm like, that doesn't sound right uh, uh, or true. But some days he tells me some things that are just remarkable and he's been learning about the cosmos and he said, Dad, do you know how many stars there are? I said, no, I don't know how many. He says, they estimate 200 billion trillion. I was like, well, which one, billion or trillion? He was like, both. I was like, well, there's my property taxes at work uh, right there. And he said, you know how many planets there might be? I was like, I don't know, more than 200 billion trillion. He said, 70 quintillion. And I said, no, you're just being like Elon Musk. You're just making up numbers, right? And you're just uh, pretending to know something. That's a real number. I Googled it. 70 quintillion planets stretching across 93 billion light years. I'm, I'm metric, so I don't know how many miles that is, but it's far. The mystery that the creator of that cosmos would subject himself to the limitations of creatureliness and place himself within the confines of time and space on one of those 70 quintillion little dots and come into the world that he loves and that he made, that's the miracle. That's the miracle. If that one can be true, then all the rest of it is fairly trivial. <laughs> He can do whatever he wants in the heavenlies to announce the arrival of his son if it's true that his son is who he said he was. Last little piece of background. Nowhere do we have a record to suggest that there are three wise men. We actually have no idea how many of them there were. There were three gifts, but probably many more than three wise men. Sorry to ruin your Christmas. I'm the worst. Pray for my family. All right, what happens next? Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. These were gifts reserved for royalty. You might go, that's a weird gift for a baby, right? Super weird. It was reserved for royalty, right? And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Last weekend, we got back from South Africa and we came back into our house and we we're like, man, it's close to Christmas. We need to set up Christmas Day call. And so we began what's supposed to be a very jolly 
festive occasion um, of setting up the house for Christmas. And I must confess, it was not jolly or festive in any way. In fact, I was like a Krankelstein of note. Um, and Sue was like, you're particularly grumpy um, this Christmas. She's like, I'm used to a level of grumpiness, um, but what is going on? Oh, are you stopping to behold the magnificence of the incarnation? She didn't say that. She just said, stop being grumpy. Uh, but that's what was going on in my mind um, through the power of the Spirit. And I don't know why it was that I wasn't feeling festive. Uh, maybe it was because I had to dislocate both of my shoulders and all of my fingers in order to be able to get our Christmas decorations down from their secret hidey hole in our storeroom. Um, maybe that was 87 degrees um, in December and I was sweating. Maybe it's just because Christmas music makes me mad, like so mad. It makes me furious. And so the kids put it on. I'm like, oh, I hate this. It's terrible. There's only one Christmas album that's any good and it was released this year by a band called Manchester Orchestra. The rest of it is terrible. If I hear Mariah Carey again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depart the kingdom, right? And so I just wasn't feeling festive or, or, or joyful at, at, at all. But over the next few days, as I started to process it through, as I was writing some stuff in my journal, as I was reading the scriptures that go with Advent, I, I realized that it had nothing to do with the outside circumstances. It wasn't Mariah's fault. It was the fact that my own heart, my own heart wasn't beholding the magnificence of what all of these trinkets actually point to. I was looking at all of the Christmas fair and allowing that to distract me and discourage me and dissuade me, but I hadn't stopped to consider and to behold the king that we celebrate in the cradle. In the midst of a busy season, I was missing out on the opportunity to behold the miracle of the incarnation afresh. And as I started to think about it again, you know what happened? My faith increased. My joy increased. Now all of this stuff doesn't matter because the message is Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am chief. And you might go, Russ, you're a dysfunctional man. Uh, how can you hate Christmas and all of its fairs so much? Now I understand that I'm in counseling, but I think... I think this danger exists for many of us today. I think some of us get through the season and hope to just survive it. I was talking to some people at a Christmas party uh, last night. It was number 461 um, of the season. And they were like, I just want to get through Christmas. And that's like a sentiment, right? We get so busy. We get so distracted. We get so poor because we're buying stuff that no one wants, right? Um, uh, because we're doing it last minute. And we're trying to impress people with food that we never eat throughout the rest of the year. And we're just trying to get through it, get through it, get through it. How are we going to survive this family function? How are we going to get through this? Oh, we need to see them. We need a Christmas card to send out, which means I need to get my family to look like a functional family for a moment. Um, and I don't think there's enough technology in the world to hide the fact that all of us cried on the day of our Christmas photo. How can we get around that, right? And so we get so distracted. And so burdened, and we don't stop to consider, we don't behold Christ. And in the story, there's actually a couple of people who do the same thing. How could you get through the season and fail to behold the magnificence of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Firstly, we fail to behold Christ when we are troubled by his kingship. We're troubled by his kingship, we're troubled by his authority. Look at verse three, it says, when Herod the king heard this, the announcement that there's another king, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod hears that perhaps the long-awaited king of Israel has been born, he isn't celebrating, he isn't excited, he isn't intrigued, he is troubled. Why? Listen, because Herod knows that there cannot be two kings. If Jesus is king, then Herod is not. 
And Herod doesn't like that because he likes autonomy. He likes being king. He likes being in control. He likes the power of that. Now, we might read this and simply conclude that Herod is the worst, right? And you wouldn't be wrong. You'd be like, what a terrible meanie. That's the message of the story. Now, now Herod is a very insecure man. We know that he, that he mandates now the, the death of all boys under two in the region, and that led to dozens of deaths. And that's a small town, uh, the area over which he, he orders that mandate. But, but that's how bloodthirsty he is. We're told from history that Herod actually orders the execution of all of his sons because he's worried that some of them are going to try usurp his power. And so he's a terrible man and an insecure man. But I don't think we get off the hook that easily, right? It doesn't get us off that easily because this King Jesus is going to go on to proclaim that he isn't just king of Israel. He isn't just king of Herod's territory. He's king of kings. And as he grows into a man, he's going to teach. And in his teachings, he's going to make demands on the lives of his followers that are truly comprehensive, which will mean that every single one of them will need to face their own Herodian crisis, which says, if Jesus is king, then I am not. And so friends, we at this Christmas season and every other day face our own Herodian crisis. If Jesus is king of my life, then I am not. Friends, some of you are struggling to behold the beauty of Jesus this Christmas because you know that if you do, then he will ask you for obedience and allegiance and you don't actually want to give it. You see, when we decide ethics and morality today, how am I to live and how am I to live in the world in relation to other people? We tend to view our ethical and our moral decisions, regardless of whether we're conservative, progressive in our view of society, we tend to view those decisions through the very postmodern lenses of autonomy and pleasure. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do what makes me feel good. What that means is, is that we can start to think that no one else actually gets to tell us what to do. If someone else mandates it for me, if someone else makes me do it, then it cannot be good in and of itself because autonomy is our highest good in society. And if it denies me any form of pleasure, then it can't be right, right? Look at the messages of society. We've started to believe them even in the church. If it feels good, do it, right? Just do what feels right to you. No one gets to tell you what to do with your own self and with your own life and with your own body and with your own resources. No one gets to tell you that, except the message of the King of Kings is that someone does. Because the problem, the crisis that we face in being a follower of Jesus is that he says that he is the king and that he makes the call in our lives on what is ethical and what is moral and what is good and what is glorifying and what is not. And listen, he has the wisdom of the ages. And so he sees things that we are not able to see. And so at times, it can be hard to agree with Jesus in his assertions on what is good and right and moral and ethical for our lives. Have you ever found this, if you're honest? Last week, I found myself reading the Sermon on the Mount and disagreeing vehemently. <laughs> can I be honest in my flesh? Blessed are the meek. I'm like, I don't think so. That doesn't feel blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. That's not what I see. But he's king. And I'm not. And so he's right. And I'm wrong. But it introduces that Herodian crisis that we have to work through if we're going to behold him for who he truly is. Friends, he's going to tell us stuff that you're going to struggle to believe this Christmas. And unless you believe him, you won't be able to properly behold him. He's going to say that it isn't possible to serve both God and money. You know what we all do when we hear him say that? It's like, no, I can. 
I can. Other people can't. Some people are reckless with their money, especially people just a bit richer than me. I hate them. They're the worst, right? But for me, I can do this. I'm the one who can do both. Jesus says, no, it's not possible. It's not possible. Like when he says that we are to bless our enemies and to love them. And we go like, oh, Jesus, you don't understand how bad they've been. He's like, people put me to death. And I bless them as they did it. Or when he says that we should forgive those who sin against us. We tend to just go like, but I don't want to. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how deep that scar is. Or when he tells us that greatness is lived in servanthood and anonymity, not through the praises of men. We go like, ah, but but I, I like it. Or when he tells us that it's better to give than to receive. It's a Herodian crisis. Herod didn't didn't want a king to diminish any of his own sense of power. And because of that, he missed out on a great opportunity to behold the lover of his soul, the God-man, the meaning of the universe, the one who could give him joy and a life of real abundance, the life that he was actually seeking, but he missed it because it meant laying down his authority. Many of us, Many of us want a bit of Jesus today, but not to the extent that he gets to take our own sovereignty away. (laughs) Not to the extent that he gets to remove some of our own power. And so some of us, listen friends, don't behold him rightly because we don't want to be beholden to what we might see. The magnificence of the Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, holding the universe together and ruling over us with loving authority. We don't want to be beholden to that because we know that we aren't currently submitting to the truth of that. And we really don't want to either. Just this week, just as I've been prepping this message, I've realized there's a number of areas in my life where I'm acting like Herod. I'm desiring my own autonomy, my own sovereignty, my own kingship over areas of my life where I don't think Jesus knows better than me. And I won't submit it. And then I go, I wonder why I can't just behold him and have my heart set ablaze by who he is because I'm not believing who he is and not submitting to who he is. Friends, listen. If we behold Christ rightly, then we will obey Christ fully. If we see him for who he is, we'd have no other choice. What that means is, is that if we have known ongoing disobedience to him in our lives, then we aren't properly seeing him for who he is. And the answer to that is, you need to see him for who he is and watch the obedience follow. Okay, that isn't all of us. Marco, some of us here, we wanna follow Christ with our whole lives. We're just struggling to fit it all in. And as we get to the end of another busy year, we're just, we're just feeling mainly distracted, right? Well, that's actually another way that you can fail to behold Christ that we see in the story. Look what it says here in verse three, but here's the observation. We fail to behold Christ when we aren't interested in his kingship. Some of you aren't resistant to his kingship. You're just kind of meh. You're just not that interested. Look, look, look at verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes. These are people who know the scriptures. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet um, in Micah five. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is so interesting, right? Tyler David remarked on this this week and and it just got me thinking. Herod summons the finest religious minds he can find 
And he asks them about the one thing that they're all looking for, which is the appearance of the Messiah. And they know their scriptures off by heart, in fact, and they get the info correct. The Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Michael was clear, case closed. Now, how far is Bethlehem from Jerusalem? Five miles. It's like next door, right? And so they know that the Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. They also know, because all of Jerusalem's in an uproar, that wise men from the east have appeared and said, the Christ has been born. Now, what is interesting here is that we don't have any sign whatsoever that any of these scholars who have been waiting for the coming king actually now go to Bethlehem to look for the coming king. They give Herod this answer And then they go back to their lives of scholarly studying about when will the Messiah come. And he's been born five miles ago and five miles away. If you would just lift their heads. Why don't they? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But it's a tragedy of the highest proportions that they weren't begging Herod to tell them what he had heard so that they themselves could go and find their one true king. See, Jesus would have been the fulfillment and the culmination of all of the scriptures that they knew so well. But they seem to have a posture that is satisfied, listen, with a shadow of him instead of a deep desire to behold him themselves. It strikes me that many of us might miss out on beholding Christ this season, not because we're on some sort of Herodian rebellion, but maybe because we have been lulled to sleep in the comfort of Christian culture that has so many images of him, so many shadows that represent the king but often not the king himself. And we get caught in all the trappings, all of the lights and feasting and and, and festivities, all good things. But they become the ultimate thing and we miss the thing behind the thing. Some of you are gonna miss beholding him this year because you're too busy and distracted. Life's too full. Some of us are gonna miss him because we're too familiar with a story that's actually universe upending. That the God of the ages came to the world, changes everything. We've reduced it to little images you can buy at Costco, and we miss out. Some of us will miss him because we're too comfortable with the status quo of our lives. We're too confident in our self-righteous systems of justification. And so we don't desperately feel the need for a rescuer, which is what he is, if we'll behold him rightly. Our friends... Don't miss out on the opportunity to behold your savior this Christmas. What happens when you do? Well, look at this. The right response to beholding Christ is joy and faith and worship and sacrifice. Look at these magi, these pagan men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What a scene where God leads pagan men to be some of the first worshipers of Christ while he is still a small and seemingly helpless child. We see in their response, though, some things that should mark us. These should be true of us if we're beholding Christ rightly. And so if they're not, then perhaps we aren't. The first thing we see is joy. And joy to the quadruple factor. It's amazing. They didn't just rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly. And how did they rejoice exceedingly? With joy. And not with joy, with great joy. And Matthew's saying, these dudes were elated. It just flowed from them. When was the last time 
When was the last time that the thought of who Christ is and what he has done for you brought you exceeding joy, perhaps even in the midst of trial and strife? Friends, if joy doesn't flow from us when we consider Christ, that's a sure sign we aren't beholding him rightly. We're gonna sing songs of joy over the next few weeks and we always sing them in such a mournful tone, right? Joy to the world. Exceeding joy, if you look at him rightly as who he is, it just flows from you. Secondly, what flows from them? Faith. It says they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. Friends, they piece it all together in a moment of spirit-induced faith. They change their whole religious outlook in a moment of meeting a baby boy. They look at a child in a very humble circumstance, and they bow on their faces before him. This is submission of their identity in recognition of the lordship of Jesus and they could only figure that out by faith. Nothing about his surroundings, nothing about their upbringing suggested the lordship of Christ. They see it by faith. Think of it. They fall at the feet of a little child. Now, now I've had a two-year-old in my house and so I understand what it's like to fall at the feet of a child. Just please stop. Just please stop. I'll do whatever it takes. Um, I will worship at your feet if you will just please stop. But what is normally our response to babies and small children, especially when they belong to someone else, right? We coo and we oo and we squeeze their cheeks and then we hand them back to their family. We don't ordinarily look at small children and go, there is my Lord and my master, right? There is the one who holds the universe together. You look at them and you go like, they can't even hold up their own heads, right? How can they hold the universe? But by faith, the Magi see it. They recognize in Jesus the lordship and wisdom of God in the seeming weakness of his son. That takes faith, it still takes faith today. Because friends, you know what? As an infant, this isn't even the weakest that Jesus will be. He will go on to be rejected and despised, then stripped down bare and publicly mocked and crucified as a weak and reviled criminal. It takes supernatural faith for us to hold on to the fact that weakness and the weakness of our Lord is our ultimate strength and that his seeming defeat is our only true hope. Oh, this Christmas, may the Lord increase our faith. It's the next thing that flows from them or what flows from joy and faith combined, worship. They fall down and they worship him. This is the proper and right result of rightly seeing Jesus. If by faith we recognize his lordship, then we have a deep desire to give him the praise and the honor and the adoration that he deserves. And so friends, we're gonna sing after this message in just a couple of minutes. You know what we often do in our church context? Either we bolt, right? I know how this goes, okay, church is over. No, it's not. We've got a lot still to do. Um, or we just kind of run through the middle of things, especially as we're gonna sing some very familiar Christmas songs. But friends, stop. Read these words. Let the Spirit bring your heart to joy as you remember and as you behold your King and then worship Him in spirit and truth today. You will see what it does to your posture, to your heart, to your soul. It will move you deeply if you allow yourself to see Him as He truly is. And then what flows from that? Sacrifice. It says, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, precious and costly and sacrificial gifts. When we rightly behold Christ for who he is, then we can rightly behold our own lives and indeed our own stuff. 
And we can be moved uh, to place that stuff where it ultimately belongs, which is at the feet of Christ. This is what Paul was getting at in Romans 12, when he says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, rightly behold God as merciful. What do you do? You present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God as your true act of worship. You see, when you see God rightly for who he is, when you understand his nature of mercy and the depth and the abundance of those mercies, what do you do? You say, Lord, I am yours. I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. And so everything I have, I hold loosely and I offer it back to you. What is your plan to help you to behold Christ this Christmas season? How are you gonna cut through the clutter? How are you gonna get through the shadows to the real essence, to see him rightly? to accurately perceive his precious value. Maybe we start now in this time of communal worship, asking the spirit to just show us who Christ really is. Asking him to just show us the love of God in the incarnation of Jesus. I love how the apostle John put it. He said, God's love was revealed among us in this way that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Why did he do it? To manifest his love for you. Behold the love of God, which is revealed to you in the image of the humility of our king of kings who came to save us because he loves us. Behold your king. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Pray that you help us in some way to make sense of it today, to respond to it rightly, to respond to it, Father, in faith and in joy and in worship and in sacrifice. Father, I pray for those today who are facing their own Herodian crisis. There's somewhere where your son is clearly calling them to obedience where they don't want to follow. And so like my heart this week, they're struggling to behold your son for who he really is because they're refusing to believe who he really is through their disobedience. Won't you turn us today? Won't you help us to submit ourselves to him? Father, I pray for those who have just pretty beat up today. It's been a tough year. And the thought of now Christmas celebrations and maybe the pain of family get-togethers and the scars that those things can reveal has them distracted and discouraged. Maybe they look back on a year and feel like this year was not what they hoped it would be. It didn't bring the healing or the restoration or the joy that they had planned. And so just struggling to cut through the clutter to behold your son, I pray that you help them today to see him as he really is and that in the midst then, even of some of the strife and the struggle and the stress, there might be a joy that flows. Lord, I pray that we would respond like those pagan magicians laying down their lives, their worldviews, their sense of self at the feet of the baby boy, at the feet of the king of kings saying he's worthy of praise. Won't you help us today just in these next few moments not to rush out, not to rush away, but to sing these very familiar lyrics, but in them for us to behold the fresh, the magnificence that you love the world so much that you sent your one and only son to be with us so that we might live through him and we behold that truth afresh today. In Jesus' name, amen.